We respectfully acknowledge the University of Arizona is on the land and territories of indigenous peoples. Today, Arizona is home to 22 federally recognized tribes, with Tucson being home to the Autumn and Yaqui. Committed to diversity and inclusion, the university strives to build sustainable relationships with sovereign native nations and indigenous communities through education offerings, partnerships, and community service. still stick with that direction because you are clear on why you're doing what you're doing. Well, hello, and thank you for joining us for episode 60 in our fourth season here at the PA Path Podcast. Today, we speak with PA Kara Carruthers, who is an associate professor and associate program director at Meharry Medical College. She is also a past president for the Physician Assistant Education Association, and we learn about her unique path to becoming a PA we learn about the Meharry Medical College PA program, and we learn about the doctoral degree discussion that occurred at the doctoral summit this past month. We hope you enjoy this session. Well, Kara, thank you so much for taking the time to meet with Steph and I and talk about Meharry Medical College's PA school. We're very excited to see yes. that institution moving to a new profession like this and embracing the PA profession. That's that's a very important step for our profession. But before we really delve into the school and kind of all the things that you're seeing there, we want to learn about your path to becoming a PA first. So can you tell us a little bit about how you ended up in the in the place that you are today through PA school and all that? Yes. So I had no plan on being a physician assistant whatsoever. From I, I definitely shared this before, um, so it's it worth repeating. From a cultural perspective, assisting anybody was not on my radar. As someone that had family members on my maternal side of the family that worked as domestics for uh, families, uh, a fairly wealthy family uh, there in Omaha, Nebraska, I feel like my family have checked a box of assisting. Um, and, and so I really thought that a PA, a physician assistant, uh, was a flunky. We followed around the docks, took notes for them, got them coffee, fetched things for them. And so the name alone was a turnoff for me, but I knew and had always been intrigued by math and science. Um, as a very young kid, I know my parents, my mom and dad, bless their hearts, that I was a little extra uh, because I can recall being three uh, playing outside in Omaha, Nebraska, in the backyard. My older sister was in school, um, and it would rain, and I had this little frisbee, and I would collect earthworms, and I would play with the earthworms, cut them in half. They would still wiggle around. Yeah, again, a little extra, <laughs> but I just thought it was so fascinating, so, so I always had this inclination for math and science. Um, my maternal grandmother developed type 2 diabetes when I was fairly young um, and ended up going blind because of it. So I spent a lot of time with her helping her out. Um, and so by the age of eight, I knew that I was going to be a physician. Um, and the original plan was I was going to be a 
pediatric endocrinologist and solve the world of juvenile diabetes because my grandmother was diabetic. Didn't quite know the physiology and the difference between type one and type two, um, but that was the plan. And so everything that, that I did kind of geared towards medicine uh, through science, uh, did a variety of summer programs through high school, um, took uh, you know high school class where we got to dissect um, uh, a few animals. Uh, so I'm a proud Omaha North Viking graduate, class of 94. Be up, baby, um, all day. Um, and so really had some awesome opportunities. Um, summer before I graduated uh, high school, uh, got a chance uh, to do a research, a summer research uh, um, kind of program um, at University of Nebraska Medical Center, uh, where I worked in a research lab with a PhD, learned how to pour gels, learned the difference between PCR, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so really was intrigued had the opportunity uh, to attend University of Nebraska at Omaha. I was a pre-med, uh, started as a chemistry major, uh, but then switched uh, to biology because chemistry majors didn't graduate very often <laughs> at UNO back, back in the day, because uh, uh, we had some real powerhouse chemistry professors that was otherworldly. Um, and I was like, oh, this is a bit much. Um, but I was fortunate uh, also with that scholarship that I was actually admitted into medical school out of high school uh, through this uh, early entry program. I had to maintain a certain GPA, take all the courses um, and whatnot. So I actually went to medical school um, after graduating um, undergrad, but it wasn't the best experience for me for a variety of reasons. Um, one, uh, and I tell this when I talk to pre-health students now, the worst piece of academic advice that I was given as an undergrad was to not take anatomy. I was told, don't mm. take anatomy. All the anatomy you need to know, you'll learn in med school. Yeah. So I go to med school class of 125, and I was maybe one of two medical students that had never had any exposure to anatomy. So we take anatomy. It's the first block, the way the curriculum was set up back then. First block, we do a head-to-toe dissection of a cadaver in 10 weeks. Wow. And I have no freaking clue. Love it. Excited about it had no idea how to approach it, what, yeah. none whatsoever. So literally we did the back upper extremity two weeks and we did histology, we did embryology, we did the gross anatomy um, and we did something called living anatomy where we were partnered up, uh, girls, uh, the, the young ladies were in uh, sports bras and shorts, guys were in shorts and we would get a card that has some clinical correlation and we were drawing with markers on each other, um, all this kind of stuff. And while again, I was intrigued, I wanted to learn it. It was so much because I was learning the medicine, the, the terminology, the language of anatomy, plus trying to apply it, plus learning the uh, clinical application uh, with it um, at the same time. So, so it was a lot um, because I had always done well in, in undergrad um, or done well in high school, did pretty well in, in undergrad, me and organic chemistry two, had to repeat organic chemistry two, because the first time your girl failed it, uh, and I had to take it again. You're in good company. <laughs> That's a PA tradition. Hey, I mean. That is not uncommon. 
who needs organic? Like no shade to organic chemistry and all the chemists, but did yeah. we really use it? Good for pharmacists. You know, pharmacology, you you really need to know cellular molecular biology. You need to know phys, really, for farm. Now, unless pharmacists, absolutely, God love you, God bless you, play with the tinker toys. But (laughs) so I wasn't accustomed to struggling, right? And I think because of that, um, had some other things uh, going on just in life at the time. Um, I was hesitant uh, to reach out to my professors. And uh, Steph will know this name, Dr. Robert Benhammer. The hammer. The hammer. Man. Widely known at the University of Nebraska among anyone who's gone to PA or medical or PT school. Man, right? If you you are familiar with the you know Benhammer. And he was the head anatomist. And finally, after struggling, 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 I finally worked up the courage to go talk to Dan. And I go in his office and he said, Carruthers, about time. I've been waiting for you to come. And that's when I realized, so I've been struggling unnecessarily because I let my pride get the best of me. I'm trying to figure it out. I go from sleeping eight hours a night to maybe four, right? I'm stressing. I'm sitting in the library for 12 hours at a time, but ain't learning nothing uh, because that's not an effective uh, learning process. But again, I was using some of the skills that that I learned um, and had served me, right? And so finally went to talk to him. He kind of helped me with an approach. So finally... The last anatomy exam for that block, which was head and neck, that's the only test I passed because I had kind of figured out, I know I'm passionate. And he could tell, he said, I know you're interested. Your approach just isn't working. Mm -hmm. And so he gave me some tips, passed head and neck. We then went into uh, another block, finished that, uh, did okay. Uh, Wasn't blowing it out the water, but did okay. Um, Then we got to physiology. Well, I was a biology major um, at UNO. I took plant physiology. No mammalian physiology. Again, not the best advising. And and while there's some overlap with plants, there's a big difference, mammalian physiology uh, versus plants. You know, plants don't have a GI tract. You ain't got to know the motility reflexes in plants. They don't have one. So again, lost, lost, um, and and just really struggled um, and ended up having uh, to repeat my first year of med school. Um, Again, the hammer, God love him. Um, I heard he is retired, but still shows up uh, because that man, look, is (laughs) (laughs) well-preserved. So he going to be around, I think, for years to come. And he's in his 90s right? But he going to be around. Um, so he actually, again, had grace on me, uh, recognized the potential, recognized the interest that I had. And he let me sit in a remedial anatomy course over the summer. Mm-hmm. He said, I want you to dive in. I want you to do the dissections. I want you to take the test because I know that you have it um, and you can do this. And, and so he allowed me to do that that summer, restarted my first year. Parents uh, didn't quite understand uh, but y- you know, they, they didn't, my, neither one of my parents finished, uh, undergrad. My dad went for a year and my mom about a semester. So they didn't even know how to help me navigate, sure. um, this. 
And, and so repeat the year, start off with a bang, me and anatomy, we good, figured out the approach, know the language, got through the second uh, block, uh, which was that biochemistry block, which was hellacious, uh, but got through it. Then physiology comes back around. Was doing okay, but again, some life was happening uh, uh, for me. Um, that did not allow me um, to demonstrate what I knew. And, and again, feeling uncomfortable mm-hmm. uh, because as you can imagine, um, Univers- Nebraska as a state is not very diverse. Yeah. So I had some things uh, that were going on that had some cultural influences uh, uh, with it um, and didn't have the support. And so at that time, uh, my mother had become ill, had some stuff going on. And one of her physicians, uh, one of, or I'll say one of the clinicians that was caring for her, um, reached out to me um, and wanted me to uh, convince my father to have my mother declared mentally incompetent to force treat her. Um, and so that was a, just a very rough time uh, for me. So subsequently, I did not perform well um, and eventually was dismissed from the program. So at this point, I'm 23, 24 years old, two thirds of my life. I've been saying I was going to be a physician, people at church, people in my family. Oh, here we go, be our doctor. And it's gone. Um, and then it was like, what the hell am I going to do now? Yeah. I don't know what else to do because I only considered being a physician. I hadn't really explored any. Have I, I have an uncle and a cousin um, who are physicians. Um, had an aunt who was a nurse. She discouraged me from the nursing profession. And my uncle, you know, didn't live in town. He, you know, really couldn't uh, help me navigate it. My cousin on the West Coast couldn't help me navigate. So I just had to figure it out. So I ended up working uh, for a couple of years, uh, landed uh, working for a healthcare system, mm-hmm. uh, uh, shout out to Allegiant Healthcare, um, and did nursing, nurse staffing, nurse personnel staffing for about two years. We had a centralized office. I'm learning about patient ratios, the PCU, the CVICU, right? versus med surge floors, thinking about staffing at long-term care facilities, mental uh, a mental, um, mental health facility as well. So how to manage that. And it was cool. Um, and I was making good money uh, as a 25-year-old, kicking it, running up to Chicago to visit friends uh, for the weekend. Had a great time, but I knew I wasn't living in my purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and so decided I needed to fix what was my deficit in med school, and that was anatomy physiology. Uh, So that led me to getting a master's degree um, in molecular, cellular, and systemic physiology with the certification in anatomy. I left Nebraska, went to Southern Illinois University, Carbondale, um, with the intention of, I'm going to get this master's degree because I'm reapplying to med school. Retook the MCAT, uh, was prepping uh, for that, as I graduated and, and part of my requirement uh, for the certification in anatomy is I had to TA the first year medical students anatomy lab. And um, at SIU, uh, the med school is based in Springfield, but the first years are in Carbondale and then they do second, third, fourth year up in Springfield. And so did that, loved it, had a grand time uh, really uh, with that uh, physiology program TA, the undergrad anatomy course, again, 
fell in love with teaching anatomy, um, which I found so ironic and got offered a job being an anatomy instructor at the medical school. So here I was, a medical school dismissal, teaching anatomy in a medical school. And I was like, God, you funny, sir. You funny, (laughs) right? So uh, end up teaching uh, for a couple of years, was still exploring uh, med school, looking into a couple of programs. Again, uh, re- uh, took the MCAT, scored decently on it, uh, definitely had a, a score that uh, would have permitted me access. But then I had second thoughts. And I was like, I really love teaching. Uh, do I want to go to medical school, do four years of med school, three to five years of a residency, plus perhaps a fellowship and be out of the classroom for 11 years? So um, at SIU, there was also a PA program that happened to be in the same building that I taught at, but I was on the second floor. They were on the first floor, so I'd never really interacted with them. Well, they needed one of the anatomy instructors to teach in the summer. So they use prosected cadavers. So they needed one of us to prosect the cadaver for them and lead the PBL, a small group. So I applied and lo and behold, they hired little old me. And that gave me firsthand insight to the profession. So uh, one of uh, the um, uh, instructors or or the the professors there, uh, Sherry Kelly, I'm gonna shout her out. She also had served as an anatomy instructor for the med school at SIU before going back to PA school um, as a non-traditional student. So me and her hit it off because again, the love of anatomy, we started talking and bless my heart, I shared the ignorant viewpoint of PAs with her. I was like, well, y'all just follow around the doctors and do all they dirty work. And she was like, oh, that's what you're doing. Oh, Let me tell you a little bit about what we do. She said, we're clinicians. We treat, we diagnose, we admit, we assist in surgery, we prescribe, we do we any area of medicine that you think of a physician, that's what a PA does the same thing. Now we don't do everything they do. This is what we do. We also, because of how we're trained, if you like emergency medicine, practice emergency medicine. You decide you want to do surgery, you can switch and do surgery mm-hmm. as a PA and you don't have to go back to school. You, you get on the job training. And I was like, wait a minute. So you practice medicine and you still teach? She said, oh, I teach two and a half days a week. I practice two and a half. I said, well, how long is the program? So we started having this conversation and my desire to practice medicine, I had kind of buried it. Yeah started to research. And I was like, so your girl got some options. And, and so that entire summer, I bugged the hell out of that faculty. <laughs> so as I was prosecting the body, as I was doing their PBL small group for their students, like I asked them so many questions. And again, the whole desire for me to practice medicine was because My grandmother developed diabetes. My mother had some health issues. My father had some health issues. People at church. And unfortunately, because of lack of diversity within the medical community, I also saw the mistreatment of people that looked like me by clinicians, right? And so for me, I wanted to bridge the gap between Mm -hmm. people that looked like me 
and this medical science because there's no reason they can't work together. So again, I initially said, man, let me pursue, let me go get a PhD in anatomy. I love teaching it. I had been researching that. Then I was thinking about, well, I understand some clinical stuff. Didn't finish med school, but had enough exposure where it made sense. Sure. Let me do public health. So I actually had kind of been taking a couple of classes, thinking about I was going to do public health and could bridge it. But that experience that summer, I was like, I can practice medicine and I can nerd out with anatomy and still teach and I won't be so far removed. That's how I, I came into the profession. Um, and, and so from that summer, from those conversations, um, really looked into what the requirements were, what I needed. Because um, again, I was a biology major, but didn't have to take micro. Um, so I had to go back and take microbiology. Um, then I started researching programs, what their requirements were. Um, a lot of programs at the time uh, required a lot um, uh, of clinical uh, experience, uh, mm -hmm. patient care. Um, and I had some. So while I was uh, working on my master's degree, I kind of illegally uh, was working. Uh, outside of my research lab. Um, and uh, besides working at Macy's in the Gap, I landed a job as an emergency room uh, registration clerk at a mm -hmm. regional hospital. Lo and behold, there were two PAs that worked in emergency medicine. And so one was a graduate of SIU. Again, I'm picking her brain, not knowing that I'm even going to consider that as a profession, yeah. but she would have me help her out. You know, I'm registering folks when it was kind of slow. And I did that for about a year. Um, and so, and, and worked about 30 hours a week uh, while I was finishing up my thesis uh, for, for my master's degree. So, but working weekends. And so that gave me some clinical exposure that I didn't know I needed. Um, and so as I'm researching programs, that was my deciding factor. Would they count uh, that exposure that I had for that year? Would they allow that to serve as direct patient contact hours or did they not require it? Um, and that's how I made my decision for the programs that I applied to um, and ended up just applying to two. Um, and that was SIU um, and University of Alabama, Birmingham, which was a surgery focused program. And because of the anatomy, I was like, this makes sense. Because again, I had never thought about the possibility of doing surgery. Um, and, and so this just opened up a lot of doors for me. Um, did some prereqs. So I had to do microbiology, which I took at a community college. And UAB required three uh, psychology courses, mm -hmm. general psych, developmental, and abnormal. Because I was teaching, I was an instructor, got to take some classes for free. Um, so I built it into my schedule and, and did nice. the prereqs, um, applied, I got into both, um, but the appeal of surgery. Um, and that's what led me uh, to enrolling um, at UAB, uh, where I started fall of uh, 2007. Mm -hmm. um, so was for sure a non-traditional student, uh, did not have a straight shot path at all. Into yeah. I mean, your story to getting to PA is probably one of the most unique ones we've had so far. You know, it, it's, it's, there's a, a, a kind of an interesting ebb and flow to that. But, but what I, there are two things that came to mind when you were telling the story. One is, to your point, because this is about this, you know, podcast is often about applicants and your point about anatomy and physiology ahead of time. Yes. It, 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 the first thing that came to mind for me was when I first tried skiing on a mountain, 
I, I went to the bunny hill to learn how to like snowplow your skis and do your weaving and, you know, do a stop. Yes. You have and, to learn the French fries and the pizza pie before you can move. Right. Move and what you moguls, did was right? you took, you went up to the, the, the Nordic ski jump. Look, the, what is it? The right black diamond? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I yeah. haven't skied before, but I know a little bit. Yeah. You just went right to like the, the scariest thing you can do. Yes. Um, and that's, yeah, I think your, your point is well taken that it's uh, not a bad idea to, to get the bunny hill out of the way and and then build on those competencies. Yes. But the other thing that really strikes me that's really interesting is your ability to explore a lot of different things and just figure out the grit and resilience you showed to figure out how to navigate those challenges you were having, I think is a really important life skill that I'm sure you are grateful to have. Yeah. And I think, you know, for pre-PA students, you know, life ain't easy, right? now, does it mean that it's extremely hard and difficult and it's insurmountable? No, but but I think it's imperative that you build in some flex, right? Build in some flexibility. I was guilty of this where I had life planned. When I graduated high school, I could tell you what my life was going to look like by the time I was 40. And none of that happened, <laughs> right? So it's okay to have a plan, but more think about where is the direction you want to go? Not every single detail, but know the direction. So if you know, hey, I want to take care of patients, do the due diligence to explore. What does a PA do? What does a nurse do? What does a nurse practitioner do? What does a physician do? What does an MD versus a DO do? Right? How is that different? What do our physical therapy colleagues do? What do social workers in medicine? And really, the direction is patient care, right? Community care, right? But be willing to kind of look and explore and have a good understanding. Because if you know your why, right? When times are tough, you can still stick with that direction because you are clear on why you're doing what you're doing. And you also see whatever profession, professional training you get that is a tool to add to your life's toolbox. So Kara, I want to switch gears just a little bit and um, talk with you about, and and I bring this up specifically because Kara actually um, is kind enough to do some lecturing at my program in in a couple of different areas and um, specifically around access to care and healthcare disparities. You know, we have talked, you know, in in several different spheres of conversation, you know, one of the things that I think PA education does really well both collectively and as individual programs, I think we are always thinking about how learners are changing and how medicine is changing and how PAs fit into the healthcare landscape. And and so I think we're constantly kind of tweaking and revising our curricula. You know, even if what we're doing is working great, I think we have to think about, okay, but is that still meeting the needs? Is our educational process creating a PA that has the skills and tools that they need to go out and meet the healthcare needs of of our nation? And so, you know, I think that's one of the things that we, one of the curricular pieces that I think has been critical to start implementing into PA curriculum is, you know, healthcare disparities and access to care. And so I'm just kind of interested in your thoughts on that. So I definitely think uh, that this is something that we have as a profession been intentional about. Um, I think we have to continue to expand it. Um, I, I think collectively, though, overall, medicine has been late to the game. We, we've been late to the party. I think our social work colleagues, I think our public health colleagues, I would dare say even our K through 12 uh, educators 
have really had, they have had no choice but to think about um, how, you know, we say social determinants of health, but how the impact of life um, has on students, have on learners. And so if it influences education, it shouldn't be a surprise that it also influences um, health outcomes, right? Um, and, and so I think as we lean into that, uh, we delve into it a little bit more. But to your point, as we have a new generation, uh, so I'm Gen X, I, most of the folks that I currently teach with um, are either Gen X or they're older millennials. Um, but we, these younger millennials and these Gen Zers, all, they all about social justice. What are we doing? How does this impact? How does this impact the environment? And I think we, because there are still a number of baby boomers, and I don't mean that disparagingly, uh, when we talk about the boomers, I know some of them don't like that, but my dad is a good boomer. I think we have to adjust it. And I don't know if we've quite kept up with that because the students are holding us accountable. They want to know, what are you doing? I know that I have anxiety. What are you doing to protect my mental health? I'm struggling. I recognize this um, in patients. Uh, what are we doing about it? Are we going to be vocal about this injustice that happens in our community, right? And I don't know collectively if we are comfortable acknowledging that because I think as we talk about the disparities that exist, as we talk about the privilege we have, and I recognize as of this point, compared to others and compared to when I grew up, I am economically privileged. I am educationally privileged. I have access to knowledge, uh, to medical care that a lot of people don't have. So yes, did I grow up privileged? Not in many ways, not at all, but I'm privileged now. And part of acknowledging privilege is sharing power. And that's the piece I think we struggle with just collectively as society, but for sure in education, there's a shared power that we have to have if we want to balance, right? If we really want to acknowledge, hey, this, that, and the other, well, there's some power that has to be shared. We have to shift some of the power dynamics. Now, does that mean, let me be clear, that the students come and tell us what to teach? No, baby, because I am a PA, you're trying to be one, right? Um, and, and so we know, you know what is necessary, but can we change our approach? Can we be more amendable to teaching virtually? Can we be more amendable to recording things so students can then go and look at it again? Can we be more open to recognizing how learners learn best may be different? Like I'm from the era, you read the doggone book. You don't understand what's in class. You go to that section of the book, you look it up. Well, I have students that ask me about an app that I can recommend to learn. And I was like, an app? Okay. So I then have to dig into my arsenal and, and I have to do a little bit more research and find what are some things that I can include in my lectures that does reach them because this is where they're at. Um, you, you know, there are studies and, you know, I really love some, some good neuroanatomy. And, and so for those of us that, that did more tactile learning, using a book, flipping through the smell of the book, right? The cadaver lab. I say the cadaver lab has the perfume of knowledge because of the smell, right? So you're engaging all these senses. Is that well, what they call that? <laughs> that's what I call it. Oh. Now, people look at me a little crazy. I was like, oh, no, no, 
you get used to it. They're like, no, Kara, you don't. Yes, you do. <laughs> if you get used to it, there's there's something going on here. <laughs> right. Awful. But you know, there are some studies that talk about students that are digital natives, where they how their synapses connect, how their brain is wired is very different than the three of us because we learn. Look, I remember beating the, the erasers from the chalkboard, right? Go up to the chalkboard and you had the job of cleaning the, the, the erasers at the end of class and having the cloud of, and they're like, a chalkboard? What's a chalk? You mean a smartboard? No, no, a chalkboard. And you're right on it, right? And so how our brains are wired are different. So how can I, as an educator, expect a student to learn exactly the way I did when we know neurologically their brains are wired different? And so that's been a challenge for me because I, I will tell you, it's been, I started grad school and started TAing a spring semester of 2003. So it's 20, so we're talking 20 years. How I taught 20 years ago as a TA in an anatomy lab, very different how I teach now. Um, I was telling the students the other day, I used to take off for misspelling <laughs> in the anatomy lab, because that's what Manhammer did. You had to, because it was two ilium, the ilium that is the small intestine and the ilium that's part of the pelvis bone. And they're spelled differently. We would get a half a point taken off. We didn't spell that joker right. So when I first started teaching, and so now I'm just like, oh my God, I hope I didn't destroy somebody's dream of being a health professional. We, we, we do what we know. Right? We, we do, do what, what we know. know. That's I always we... blow my students' mind a little bit when I tell them that I went to PA school pre-internet and pre-PowerPoint and that there were <clears throat> transparencies up on you know that they would put the on an overhead projector yes. and I actually hand wrote notes and, yes. and they, just, they, they can't even conceive of the fact yeah. that I didn't have a laptop or an iPad and there was no PowerPoint it was all and, and talking had, and paper and writing and for me the PowerPoints you had to pay to print off the PowerPoint so I could take notes on the PowerPoint That's exactly right and I had binders digital <laughs> I, like, I destroy so many trees you talked about this concept of transitioning how we teach because the learners are different. So, so do you find like your colleagues at Meharry and across the country in your roles, uh, past president of PAEA, do you still see that narrative out there from your colleagues that are like, this is the way I learn, that's the way they need to learn? I do. I, I don't see it from everyone, but I, yes, I, I still see that. And, and it is something that we are being intentional about uh, here at Meharry. Like we're really pushing each other uh, to shift, to do, uh, be creative. Uh, so this is my first time teaching anatomy without a cadaver, which is very foreign to me. <laughs> <laughs> and so I had to modify, but we're using a virtual reality uh, where we have 3D glasses. And so we can go in and I can like pull up and just have the arteries or just have uh, the nerves of a particular section. And with this 3D uh, uh, program can kind of pull stuff out. It looks like it's almost coming out the screen at you. We can flip stuff around. Um, and so it's different because I like touching, again, the perfume yeah. of knowledge, which is the anatomy lab. <laughs> I miss that smell. So, so, so it's different, but 
the students also gravitate towards it because yeah. um, because of this system, because of this technology, um, I can use it not only for anatomy, but right now in pathophys, we're in the cardiovascular section. And so when I'm talking about the cardiac cycle and an EKG and what's contracting and depolarizing versus relaxing when we look at then the EKG, mm-hmm. right? P wave, mm-hmm. QRS complex, we then again, part of this uh, technology can allow them to see and appreciate how this all uh, works cool. together. That is cool. That's a great, great way to really deepen the understanding of that material. So yes. and they appreciate all that tech stuff. Now, again, yeah. I am still team Android and I get talked about for not having an iPhone, even though I got a MacBook, nonetheless, it doesn't yeah. matter. You're I'm halfway able there. to navigate between both. <laughs> Let's talk about Mary College. So Mary yes. Medical College started in 1915. And it took him over a so, hundred years. Mahari, yeah, it was actually 1876. 1876 was the medical department. So it's over the medical school is over a hundred years old. Yeah, yeah. And 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 it took him over a hundred years to figure out they needed a PA school. You know, they eventually got here. I I, I mean, technically, <laughs> our professions of what about 55? Yeah, years? yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. well, we're actually we're approaching. In what, 2025 will be 60. 60, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so it took them a little bit. You know, yeah, it took a little while, but they're here. Tell us about your school, uh, what y'all are doing and how applicants can really strengthen their application to be a successful matriculant so, for your school. So um, our first inaugural cohort uh, started this January um, and how we constructed the program. Again, we're trying to do something a little different. So we do not have a minimum GPA, science or overall at all. We don't require the GRE. We don't require any of uh, the other um, standardized exams uh, that that are out there. And again, no shade or knock uh, to people who use those. Um, I would implore um, our colleagues though to, to look at the history of the GRE um, and really think about if it is uh, necessary uh, because most programs will tell you that they haven't found correlation with success on the pants because I don't know about you, but I haven't used Pythagorean theorem since 10th grade geometry, but you got to know it for the GRE. And I'm like, why? Yeah. You're so, preaching to the choir with the two of us. So, man. so <laughs> as well as, you know, there are uh, some other um, exams out there. But again, some of the things that they're testing um, are things that we don't require for a prerequisite. Um, And and so we did not want to create additional barriers to students, uh, whether it's financial, whether it's uh, test taking. And and so we were very intentional about our prereqs. Um, Again, it's the biology one and two, chem one and two, human anatomy or mammalian anatomy, uh, mammalian uh, physiology, microbiology, strong requirement uh, for statistics, um, as well as we have some preferred courses, which are upper level biology courses uh, that we feel really help set the foundation uh, for the practice of medicine and allow us to build on it. We do require though, that anatomy and physiology is taken within five years. Uh, This is an adjustment we made uh, from our first cohort uh, to this a new uh, application season that will open at the end of April. Um, We also don't require clinical experience 
but it is preferred, right? Um, because it's about how do you navigate uh, the medical system? We don't say, oh, well, we, if you were a farm tech, we won't count that. You had to have been a nurse. So we don't even put a lot of parameters on that. Now, you can't be have been your grandma's sitter in the summer. You can't say, well, I sat with my grandma. My grandma had Alzheimer's. Yeah, that don't count. <laughs> like we want this to be formalized um, exposure. But again, it's a preference. And because we are intentional about adding to uh, the diverse uh, populations, uh, particularly those groups that are his have been historically excluded in the medical professions, those are, we also are looking at that. So, so we do give preference to students who were graduates of historical Black colleges and universities. So, so we kind of look at that. So we have all this uh, listed on our website, what those preferences are, because we don't want students to feel like, well, I applied and I didn't know they required this. We have it spelled out, one, because it's required by RPA, um, yeah. and we want to ensure that, that we're in compliance. But we also want students that have a sense of service, right? They are about community service. They're about um, how to add to our communities um, in a meaningful way. And, and while I am not knocking um, a good medical uh, uh, mission trip, uh, that's great. But what are you doing long-term? How are you volunteering within the community? And, and it's not even all medical volunteering. Um, if it's, hey, I, I do meals on wheels and I've been doing it consistently the last four to five years. Um, again, we want students that are invested in the communities where they will land. Because if you don't have that heart uh, for service before you come to PA school, I can't grow that. In. Now, I can require you to do some things as part of the curriculum, which we've also done in some of our courses. There is a service component that's part of it. But I want you to, as my mother, rest in peace, Missionary Mary, I refer to her as, she said, baby, to do good, you got to have the good in you. So we want students that have the heart for service and community service and community engagement and participation, we want them to have that before they come because they will also do that while they're here. But once they graduate and they are practicing in communities across this country, I also want them to continue that service. Um, and, and that's kind of how we've constructed the program. So had a great group of students, um, had a nice number of applicants. Um, we kind of uh, started uh, knowing that uh, ArcPA wasn't meeting until June, got the official word. So we then did a, a full throttle, a big push, um, and had a nice number of applicants, ended up interviewing a little over 200 to distill down to 25. We are not going to interview that many this year. <laughs> that was a lot. But, but still, uh, same parameters, uh, same, same look. Uh, you know, we definitely want students uh, who are mission fit for us. I definitely want them uh, to acknowledge the uniqueness um, of attending a PA program at a HBCU uh, because it's different. Um, you know, this is the first HBCU experience that I've had uh, professionally or even personally, but it, it, it's a it's a unique experience. Um, it's a good time. I will say the cafeteria. One of my students brought over some peach cobbler for me yesterday. So you know, Wednesdays. There's some distinct advantages for sure. There are some distinct advantages and the peach cobbler was all right. Um, I must say so myself. That is great. 
Well, I'm going to shift gears just a little bit. Um, the three of us just both, we just recently had the opportunity to participate in PAEA's doctoral summit. And for <clears throat> those who might not know, that was um, a little bit of a think tank that was a, a piece of the process that PAEA has undertaken to really explore the topic of the PA profession moving to the doctoral degree in some way, shape, or form. And I know much of that process, kind of the early parts of that process took place during your leadership of, of PAEA during your probably probably started during your president-elect year and then transcended your presidential year um, and your immediate press president now. So on the heels of that, you know, this is a complex topic with lots of moving parts and lots of pros and cons and different ways that you can kind of think about it and slice it and dice it. What If you were to kind of address your three main takeaways from that from that specific doctoral summit and kind of the conversation and the you know, the, the interaction that took place there, what were, what were your kind of your three main takeaways from that? Oh man, that's a great question. So be, because I have to put on my PAEA um, immediate past president's hat, uh, let me preface this by saying uh, to the point that was made, this was a think tank um, and this was an opportunity for us to get many voices and perspectives in the room that will ultimately help guide the board to present a suggestion to the membership. So this was not uh, a think tank that decided, yes, the profession is going to a doctorate. Uh, so I just want to put that out there. It was for us to get information um, so that the board uh, will then present an option uh, to the membership um, and at the business meeting in early October uh, with that uh, presentation uh, and recommendation from the board, the membership will decide if they're going to accept the recommendation. Uh, so let me put that out there because we were like, oh, they made a decision. Fully okay. disclosed. No, no. Fully disclosed. We did not make a decision, but but definitely getting some perspectives. Um, so the takeaways uh, that that I, that I got from that is to the point that you said this is a complex issue. There are many factors um, that we have to intentionally consider recommending one way or the other. Right. This is also going to be something that's going to take time. It's not. I I personally again don't think this is something that is going to be rapid. Because if we are to do it right, now I'm not saying that we take 50 years, another 50 years to do it, but as far as this is going to be implemented in the next year or two, don't think that would be a takeaway that, that I would say I, I took from that because there is a level of intentionality that we have to have to plan, to thoughtfully plan this out because we do have to consider how do we ensure that this path to practicing medicine as a PA is accessible? Um, you know, and that's looking at everything from those who's interested in the profession uh, that have disabilities that are both visible and non-visible, um, or as a parent, uh, we'll say a parent versus a non-apparent. Is this a pathway that can remain accessible for those who have been intentionally marginalized? Uh, from the practice of medicine? Is this going to be accessible for those um, who are non-traditional? They're not a straight path out of undergrad. Is this also going to be accessible for those that don't come from wealth, right, and have financial privilege? Uh, because we know that there is a, a significant distinction, both in medical school, and I would dare say also we see it 
um, in our profession, that those students that do come from wealth, and, and not that that is a slight on them at all, uh, because they didn't be asked to be born into the families they were born in, but it is a privilege that they have. How do we ensure um, that, that we yet allow those that want to access our profession have access to it? And so I do think that has to be done intentionally and thoughtfully. Um, and it's not going to be something rapid. But I also think it's something that's doable. Um, I, I think it is doable. I, I will say I had to challenge myself to remain open-minded uh, last week because I had my initial thoughts uh, about this whole uh, topic, but I pushed myself to be open-minded. Um, and so I, I will say the last takeaway would be I want our colleagues to be open-minded uh, to the variety of perspectives and, and to take ourselves out of it, because I think it's easy to put, well, if it was me, I would do it. But this is the future. Um, I, I know I said this a lot uh, last year during my presidential year. Um, we celebrated 50 years as an association, but we got to look forward to the next 50 years for us to be sustainable. Um, and I think not only as our association, but as a profession, because again, we just said we're going to be 60 um, literally in two years. This is 2023 and 25. We're going to be 60. How do we ensure that our profession is yet relevant, is remaining, influences our society in another 60 years? And so I think um, as we go through this and you know, the board takes the input that came out of the various perspectives from this summit um, and make a recommendation. Uh, definitely just just want our colleagues to be open-minded and really think about this uh, thoroughly as they decide to accept or not accept uh, the position that the board brings forth. Yeah, I think when I, I was just looking at data when I came back from the doctoral summit in the state of Arizona, at the composition of PAs that are practicing in Arizona from the NCCPA statistical survey that they do such a great job at. And when you look at underrepresented in medicine numbers, we're still with the master's degree right now. We are still not even coming close in the vast majority of communities in representing those communities. You so eloquently talked at the beginning about your your path and your observations as a young lady and recognizing the lack of equity and access to people that looked like you in your community practicing medicine for your family. And we're still, however many years it's been, facing that exact same issue. So so to your point, I think I went in thinking there's no way I was going to support it. And, and I think there were some points brought up that made me think, well, maybe we're, you know, the, the assistant name is is a barrier that we're not recognizing. Maybe the fact that all the other professions have a doctorate and we don't is a barrier that we're not seeing. So I felt thirsty for more data from from those perspectives, but but I think we do need to be open-minded about continuing to growing the profession as well. So I uh, appreciate your thoughts on that, Kara, and I know it's going to be a continued conversation for years to come on how to do this the right way. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and just, you know, kind of to the point, uh, looking at the communities, um, looking at the composition of the profession, I, I, I think one of the unconscious thought processes that we need to uncouple from as a profession, um, as educators, We've done it and we see it reflected in our profession in that our profession is predominantly female, predominantly women. And I think all of us can share experiences in science classes and math classes where women or young ladies 
um, girls were discouraged from pursuing medicine and science and, and math. And I think we've done a great job with that. Yeah, that's a great Where thing. we haven't done a great job with is we have made the assumption that black and brown and poor mean unable. And we leave, well, I don't, you know, when we talk about increasing diversity within our profession, well, I don't want them to struggle. Well, last time I checked one, not only is my blackness, uh, uh, you know, not only do the melanin be popping, but my blackness is not also, there's no gene for race. Yeah. This is my melanos, again, getting nerdy. This is my melanocyte expression. Y'all secrete melanocytes too. Yours is just red, yellow. Mine is black, brown, right? So yep. we all got melanin. Yep. It just looks differently. And there's no gene for race. So why do we automatically assume that if you are of a racial category, you're inept and yep. you cannot learn? And, and so that is an unconscious thought process that yet permeates PA education. Sometimes folks is bold enough to say it out loud, but let's say it out loud and let's work on uncoupling that narrative because we, again, assume Black, Brown, non-traditional, oh, they're going to struggle. Poor, oh, they're going to struggle. Is it that they're going to struggle academically or is it they may have some life things that someone that is more well-to-do that is economically privileged don't have to think about, yep. right? Yeah. And so then what is our job and responsibility as educators to, if we are intentionally trying to recruit students that may have some life that's different from ours, how do we support them? How do we ensure that as students are coming in that may be single parents, we think about the clinical rotations we send them on. If we require them to go out of town, are we thinking about childcare? Do we think about daycare that's close to campus if they have night classes? So what are those intentional things? We have students that, that may come from families that don't have extra money to help them. I've had a student who did not look like me, but was from a rural area that was lower socioeconomic status was selling plasma to buy groceries during PA school. Yeah. So how do we ensure we have food pantries on our campuses so that students don't feel shame or stigma or what are little, so those are the sort of things that our students need support. I don't need you to marginalize them because they, their melanocytes secrete a different color. It's how do we look at life for our students, how do we, you know, one of the new ARCPA uh, standards is about mental health, talking about burnout. What we have intentionally done is we have one day, we don't have class for the students. We let them do their uh, therapy appointments, go to the dentist, go to the doctor, sleep in, catch up on work, review and stuff. We have a day. Now, the faculty, we still work we have yeah. a faculty meetings then, or, you know, we may do some special seminars for them in the afternoon, but we are intentional about that because we know they need some downtime. Yeah. Is it different than how we went to PS school? They was like, you need a mental health day, girl. That's what the weekends is for, right? Yeah, yeah. So you're talking about, I mean, basically you're saying we have to be more cognizant of being intentional yes. in every aspect of this yes. and being intentional, not only in recognizing the disparities of representation among our peers and colleagues or in the profession and in our, in our schools. But also we have to be cognizant, recognize the importance of retention and ensuring that there is a equitable and inclusive environment that when they're there, they feel the love like every other student does 
equitably. Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, the, the other thing that, um, uh, again, you know, because of some of the work that I've done, uh, that is very interesting to me, people don't know the difference between equality and equity. And I think we're like, well, no, we treat every student the same, but we can't. Right. Every student's different. They Every student different is needs. different and they need certain support. Um, and, and that's OK. And it doesn't mean that that's lacking fairness. But if you it, it, we all are different heights. I'm five, nine. Some people are five, two. Some people are four, eleven. And if the fence is six foot tall, I have a greater likelihood of seeing over the fence. Mm -hmm. Right. Than a person that's four, eleven person that four, eleven. You all need to give them about a, a, a good two and a half feet to stand on to see over the fence. Yeah. For me, I just need another three to four inches. That's equity. But to say, well, no, we're about equality. Again, Not we got to evolve in how we teach it and, and how we position, because this also goes back to how we treat patients. We don't treat every patient the same. Some people are on a beta blocker for their blood pressure. Some people are on a calcium channel blocker. Some people are on a diuretic. We don't treat the patients the same in our management style, because people need different things because, hey, they also have kidney disease that we also got to manage. They also have congestive heart failure we got to manage. So if we can apply that principle to our patients, yep. my God, why can't we apply it to students? Absolutely. Great, great points. Well, Kara, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. We really appreciate it. And, you know, I'd also like to just give an extra thanks to you for your leadership within our profession. You know, you've, you, during your presidency, there have been some really important topics that have come to the forefront and we, we really appreciate the, the time that you've put forth, um, both personally and professionally to, to, to lead the organization through, through some interesting times. So thank you very much. Absolutely. I appreciate you guys having me on. Well, we want to thank our guest, P.A. Kara Carruthers, for her time and insights into her path and into the Meharry Medical College's developing P.A. program. We're excited to see their program take form and look forward to seeing their success in the future. Tune in next week as we speak with Dr. Deepu Patel from the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Patel shares her background of becoming a P.A., her leadership experiences, and also some of the innovative things that she is doing at the University of Pittsburgh's PA program. Until next time, we wish you success with whatever path you're walking in life, and thank you for joining us. The purpose of this podcast is to provide news and information on the PA profession, and it is for informational purposes only. The views and perspectives expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and guests, and do not necessarily reflect the positions or policies of the University of Arizona.